during the course. Where did you all come from? <laughs> the matter is filling up the room or something. So I'm kind of curious how you all are doing after you had your little um, volcanic explosion into talking and laughter and merrymaking and actually getting to look into the eyes and talk to and say hello to the people you've been saying meta to and receiving meta from all week. How was that? Fantastic. (laughs) Any other responses other than fantastic? I'm shaking heads. <laughs> just, just, just one or two words is good. <laughs> ah, hard enough to feel discouraged going back into practice. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, more challenging. Yeah, so it's a mixed bag. You know, it's both joy and fun and fantastic, and also... Um, uh, challenging, and it also, you know, words are very powerful and can create um, both unity and love, but also division and and reinforce a sense of separation. And um, it just gives us a little taste, really, of uh, taking our practice, taking this spirit of metta into our lives, and the challenges and joys of doing that. And that's really what I want to talk about tonight. Is is as we take steps tomorrow to re-enter our lives, um, some things to bear in mind while doing that, since um, we're coming from a very rarefied environment here. You know, we're living in a in a monastery of silence and love and kindness and goodwill, and where the culture supports slowing down and being mindful and being present and opening the heart and going back into a culture that's uh, a little busier and a little quicker and a little um, maybe not so friendly sometimes. Or um, I want to read something just to remind you of what life is like um, back in your other world, if I can find it. This is from uh, something that was written in the, in the Washington Post. It's called Sweet Nothing. How have you been? Busy. How's work? Busy. How was your week? Good. Busy. You name the question, busy is the answer. Yes, yes, I know we are all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, busy is simpler than, than, 
is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. Certainly there are more interesting, more original, more accurate ways to answer the question, how are you? I'm hungry for a burrito. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my house. I'm itchy. (laughs) Yet busy stands alone as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I'm busy is a short way of, of saying, my time is filled, my phone doesn't stop ringing, and therefore you should think very highly of me. Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy? Boy, this week's crazy. I've got 10 caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? I have a hunch that there is a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase of busyness. Look at us. We're all pros now at hailing cabs, making Xeroxes, carpooling, performing surgeries with a to-go cup in hand. We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, not just high on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing things and accomplishing, crossing off our to-do list. As kids, our stock answer to most every question, what did you do at school today, was, or what's new, was nothing. (laughs) In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. Then somewhere on the way to adulthood, we easily took, we each took a 180-degree turn. We cashed in on nothing for busy. I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. <laughs> Maybe we should try reintroducing it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing, I say to myself a few times, and I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated, zenish. <laughs> nothing. Now I'm picturing emptiness, a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond. Nothing, nothing, nothing. How do we get so far away from it? So there you have it. Life is busy. I say that word a lot. When someone asks me how I am, I say, yeah, pretty busy, thanks. (laughs) And that reminds me to come up with a more original answer. (laughs) So, here we are, the end of our eight days of practice, contemplating how to take this very subtle and beautiful and refined quality that we've been developing, this intention, this aspiration to wish ourselves and others well, to live happily. And it's... um, it's, a, it's an interesting journey because we become much more sensitive as we meditate, as we get quiet, as we you know, do a very simple schedule, no choices. And our heart becomes more open to both joy and sorrow. And as you know, when we go back into, the, into our lives, the world is also full of joys and sorrows. And so um, it's important to go very gently and carefully and I was on the last uh, teaching a retreat last a couple of weeks ago at Spirit Rock. I had an Alaskan fisherman who was talking about he, he fishes for Dungeness crabs, and he was reminding me what they do uh, when 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 the crabs are growing. They um, they shed their skins like snakes, and they what they do is they crawl out of their old skin, and they hang out very exposed and vulnerable for several days while the new crustacean layer grows. 
And so, and then they, they grow into a bigger, stronger, more, you know, more, more mature crab. But those few days is, is obviously the days that they're very vulnerable to attack. And um, sometimes I think a retreat being a little like that, it's like we've peeled off the layers of our defenses, of our resistances, of our protectiveness, the way we guard ourselves in the world, and we're very open. And so that's to be respected and honored and to, to as I say, to ease back into whatever we do as much as we can with some, with some grace and some gentleness. There's a little couple of lines from a nice nin that I like very much that speak a little to this, to this invitation we're being given as we go back into the world. And the day came, she says, when the risk to remain in a tight bud was more painful than the, than the risk it took to blossom. And the day came when the risk to remain in a tight bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. So here you are, you may not know it, you may not see it, but from where we sit, this room is full of 93 blossoming Buddhas. You know, the, the, you know the, we always wish we did a before and after photograph. You know, everyone comes in tired and you know, somewhat crusty and grumpy and jet-lagged and just you know, usually stressed from work. And over the days, that, that stress peels off and the, the heart opens and begins to glow and, and you blossom and radiating. And, uh, it's, a beautif- it's a beautiful joy to see. And so the invitation is how do we... How do we Cultivate and maintain that state of presence or openness or heart connection in our lives. And that's really the essence of the practice. You know, we don't come here simply to become good meditators. That's not the point. It's an, an essential part of our practice is, is the meditation practice. But we're not just being good Zafu-dwelling human beings. The point is to become to really radiate these qualities in our lives towards ourselves and towards everything that we meet. And it's a very powerful force, as you may have noticed. The power, the power of love, the power of kindness is not something wimpy, not something uh, easily pushed over. It's a very powerful force. And of course, our, our world needs it so much. There's the line, the Hopi elders, um, reading from the Hopi elders recently, that the last line of that poem they said, you are the ones you've been waiting for. You are the ones we've been waiting for. So it's really up to you. It's really up to us to bring this force of kindness, compassion, mindfulness into the world. Without laying, of course, too heavy a trip on you. <laughs> Not just up to you. This world is you know, seamlessly interconnected, fortunately. Emily Dick- Dickinson once wrote, I had no time to hate because the world would hinder me, and life was not so ample, I could finish enmity. So sometimes when we take a, a, take a sort of different vantage point from our lives, we see life's too short. Life's too short to live contracted, to live in fear, to live in hatred. Hopefully you've tasted that some this week. So one of the things I like to remember and, and to remind myself and remind other people when we leave retreat, especially meta retreat, is uh, we're not really going anywhere. We're not really, there's a, there's a way that, um, you know, the phrase goes, wherever you go, there you are. It's the same with our meta practice. Wherever you go, there the heart is. It's not like we have to 
somehow bundle this whatever quality of matter you've connected with or understood, package it in a box and padlock it and carry it around your, on your back like Santa Claus and bring it out every now and then. Um, it's really within you. The qualities, the seeds, the practice, the intention that you've been doing moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, it's been doing its work and will continue, the, the consequences of it will continue to unfold. So it's partly trusting in the practice and also trusting in our goodness, trusting in the goodness of our true nature. That that heart of kindness, the heart of compassion, is not separate from who you are. Even if, as I've heard some people say, they had a really hard retreat, uh, it was really a struggle, mostly what they dealt with was the hindrances, they had moments where they glimmered what, what metta was, what compassion was. Even if that was the case, it doesn't deny the truth that the heart's essence is kindness, is care. And it may be very obscured. It may be very hidden in some ways. And the practice, as you'll see over time, unfolds it. This is a poem from Antonio Machado, who I love, which I love very much. Well, last night I was, as I was sleeping, and he's speaking to this quality, this in, of, of innate, the innate heart within us. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that a spring was breaking out in my heart. I said, along which secret aqueduct, O water, are you coming to me? Water of a new life that I have never drunk. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart and the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, a marvelous error, that a fiery sun was giving light inside my heart. It was fiery because I felt warmth as from a hearth, and sun because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. Last night as I was dreaming, I dreamt, marvelous error, that it was God I had here inside my heart. So I hope you may have intimated in some ways the light or the sun or the warmth or the hearth that's in your hearts that it can't be taken from you. And to remember, as we do if we leave a mindfulness retreat or in, our, in the context of our mindfulness practice, we cultivate awareness, we cultivate loving kindness. And in many times in the days here and also in the same in your lives, there'll be times when you completely forget and space out that you ever did a meta retreat. You forget everything you ever learned. You become completely unmindful. You know, it can happen as soon. I remember I was um, not long ago teaching a meta retreat and um, you know, I was probably halfway through the retreat and um, I went to the bank and I was, I was running late and of course is when you're running late you get to the bank and there's a huge line that was going to make me more late. And I got caught in this sort of fire of reactivity, again, particularly because I know this bank and it always has a long line. <laughs> so I have a history with it. And I, got, and I was stewing in this line. Like, they're taking so long. They're doing it on purpose. They know I'm late. Mm, antsy, antsy, antsy. And then I just remembered, oh, wait a minute. I'm, on a, I'm teaching a meta retreat. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and I, so I felt the pain and the contraction of rushing and being that, being that, feeling that divisive. And I relaxed, took some breaths. Oh, and I could see that the, 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 the counter-assistants were stressed. Oh, may you be happy. And everybody else in line looked as frustrated as I did. Oh, may you be happy too. 
So it is so safe to say that, you know, we do this practice, whatever practice it is, and we forget. You know, we, and we, we sometimes feel like we're a million miles away from what we've been cultivating, nurturing very carefully, and not to worry too much, not to get down on ourselves. Just, just remember, oh, it's only a moment away. As I said in, the, in sometime earlier in the, in the retreat about that quote from Tolka Ogyan, mindfulness is easy, remembering is difficult. A lot of this practice is it's a remembering practice, remembering our intention, remembering our aspiration to wish for the welfare of ourselves and others. So what's what I like about this practice and what I think is very useful is it's very portable. It's very accessible. Because we've grounded the, the meta practice using these phrases, these, in, these intentional wishes, um, we can gather the seed and the force of intention in any moment. It's very, it's very quick to, to just, um, you know, when we remember, to wish somebody well, to wish somebody happiness. You know, I call it stealth matter, you know, where we just in our lives or in, in driving, in meetings, you know, all the places that we might ordinarily get contracted or tight or grumpy or resistant. You know, we can go into a meeting and before the meeting we can just say to ourselves, okay, may this meeting, you know, instead of really wholesome intention, may my heart stay open during this meeting. May, may I stay connected in some way. You might write ourselves a little note, you know, in a, in a little file. You know, may everybody in this in this room be happy. You know, even if even if with some antagonistic relationship. So all the different ways that you can just come back to this simple intention. You know, when I write emails, I try to remember to always say something metaphor at the beginning. Sometimes, in times I've done this as a practice, rather than just, where are we meeting tonight? It's, hi, you know, I hope you're well. I hope things are going well for you. I hope you're happy. It doesn't take much to bring a seed of kindness. You know, when we're shopping, when we're in lines, when we're out in our day. You know, there's all these times in our lives where we're waiting, where we're stopping and waiting. And we have, the t- we have the chance to either get contracted and, and, and anxious about time and or whatever, or we can go, oh, may you be happy. May you get to where you're going on time. Or when we're listening to the news on, on, on TV or on the radio, again, instead of just moving to fear and contraction, sending matter to what, whoever it is that's uh, distressing. Whatever latest calamity of the day is, you know, to practice, to remember, just to wish well. It's it's a the beautiful aspect of matter is it's a connecting practice. It makes us feel less separate. And to remember that um, bringing matter into our lives doesn't need to be something grand. You know, we talk about love and compassion. Sometimes we have this idea, well, I have to do something. I can't do anything unless it's really noble. Unless I'm really Mother Teresa, I'm just not going to bother. You know, just why, what's the point? Um, somebody asked her once, uh, how, do, how have you done 
so much in your life? How, how, do, you, how do you do what you do? Um, she says, I pick one body up at a time. I pick one person up at a time. You know, when she was working in Calcutta, working with the homeless, it wasn't like she had this grandiose vision of you know, a world network of um, nuns and, and, and charities. She just did what was in front of her. She saw there was a lot of homelessness and destitution and poverty, and that's what she worked with, one body at a time. She says, you can only do small things, but you can do them with great love. So, and I think it, to remember to take time to connect is really uh, a very practical seed we can we can we can bring into our lives. You know, I think a lot of us f- can feel very isolated or alienated or disconnected, you know, just with so much contact with the virtual world. I know when I was working on my book and I was writing a lot and pretty much holed up in my house for days on end, going to buy bread was really exciting. <laughs> Oh, it's another human being. How exciting. It's not a computer screen. And I'd make a lot of effort to just connect with the person at the checkout or the person in the post office because I got how precious that contact was and how sweet it can be when we bring some presence and some kindness to it. Another place that I practice it is when I'm uh, calling some company. And usually when you call some company and actually get through to a human being after half an hour being on a voicemail system, I like to make the point of asking where they are. Because you know, a lot of the time these days you call and, and they're, well, I'm actually in Mysore, India, or I'm in Jakarta, Indonesia, or I'm in you know, all kinds of really interesting places that I'd like to visit. And you know, it's so easy, and, I, and I, I've certainly done this, you know, gotten frustrated by the voicemail system and by being put on hold and being put through the wrong department. And by the time I get to speak to a human being, you know, my blood pressure is pretty high. And it's so easy to, to slip into impatience and frustration and, and sort of blame. And I always try to remember, oh, this person's probably working in some cubicle in some huge building that's full of cubicles, there's people in some other country who are probably getting paid minimum wage. Um, and just to remember that they're dealing with irate Americans all day. <laughs> or irate customers. And that's a human being. And I've had some of the sweetest conversations with, you know, especially because I spent a lot of time living in India. When I find out that they're from Mysore or they're living in Bombay or you know, Benares or like, oh, I was there in 1999. It's such a beautiful place. And and it just, you know, it's connection. It's beautiful. So one question that's useful to ask as you leave the retreat is, where is metta most needed in my life? Where is, most, where is metta most deficient in my life? In which aspect, which area? I think often the place that it's most lacking, sadly, is towards ourselves. As you've noticed, wishing meta for ourselves is not, is not necessarily that easy. How many people had a, found the wishing meta for yourself challenging from time to time? Good half to two-thirds. I'm very happy that a third of you didn't. That's great. 
So, you know, and as, as love, this, the, the wellspring of love really begins with our relationship to ourselves. And so it's essential that we also bring that into our lives, bring that into it, into how we relate to ourselves, how we live, how we talk to ourselves. There's a poem that I like very much from Derek Walcott that some of you will know that um, speaks a little to how it might be to come home to ourselves and relate to ourselves with, with a sense of fullness rather than a sense of critique. He says, The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, Sit here and eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine and give bread and give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf and the photographs and the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror and sit and feast on your life. So how would it be for for you to do that, to sit and feast on your life? Feast on yourself rather than looking outside of ourselves for the source of happiness. And I'm sure even now for some of you, the critic is, you know, is reviewing the retreat, and even we ask you to suspend evaluation till the end of the retreat. Well, it's like, okay, it's the end of the retreat. Roll up the sleeves. <laughs> Your meta practice wasn't very good. You didn't develop too much. You don't have any meta to take in the world anyway. So what's the point? Well, by the time you get home, you'll forget. I know. So notice if your critic has um, started to reassert itself and evaluate your practice as if it knows, as if we can know the value of our practice. We, can't, we, we can never underestimate the power of intention, the power of, of returning to this intention time after time after time, like Sharon's story that she told at the beginning of the retreat about breaking the vase. And we also have to be realistic about our practice. You know, if this is the first time of really uh, exploring meta practice, your first retreat, um, be 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 realistic about what's possible. Not create un, 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 unnecessarily high expectations that you'll that you'll fail. You know that it's so easy for us to see where we're not coming up to scratch, and to forgive and to to give ourselves a hard time. And I think one of the ways that can support our practice here is to um, have some sense of forgiveness for ourselves, forgiveness for the times that we space out, forgiveness for the times where our heart closes, forgiveness for the times that we don't extend ourselves. Because we're human, and that's part of being human. There's a phrase that a yogi uh, told me that she was using last from the last retreat. She said, no matter what I've done in the past, may I love myself just as I am. No matter what I've done in the past, may I love myself just as I am. So this is the place for forgiveness. I was on a, a retreat some years ago. It was actually the beginning of my practice um, where I had to learn the power of forgiveness. Uh, your practice is very humbling, have you noticed? You, know, you sit and look at yourself long enough, it's very humbling to see the mind doing all its funny things and 
to see all the ways that we can act out and space out. And so I was on this retreat and I was doing some um, uh, some meta practice and mindfulness practice, and uh, my roommate was sick. So and I was craving chocolate. I was having a really hard retreat, and it was in the middle of the country, like here, and it was about a three-mile hike through the through the farmers' fields to the local candy store in the village. It was a post office candy store, you know, village store. And I thought, well, my flat, my my roommate's sick. If I go get some lemsip, you know, some cold medicine, um, you know, that's a good excuse so I can load up on chocolate. So off I went to uh, put on my rain gear. It was a howling stormy night, but I didn't care because <laughs> I was excited about getting chocolate. So I, off, I go down, get to the store, and it's, you know, lots of candy as there is, there is in these uh, village stores in England. So I loaded up, you know, pockets heavy full of candy. And I got so distracted by the chocolate and candy that I forgot about the cold medicine. <laughs> so I get back to the room, and I walk in the room, and it's like, oh. <laughs> have some chocolate. <laughs> So sometimes we have to forgive ourselves. <laughs> at the end of the retreat, he drew me this. He was an artist, my friend, and he drew me this picture of me at the store with, the, with my coat stuffed full of chocolate <laughs> and candy. And I'm asking the woman behind the counter, um, you know, can I have the, some more chocolate? And all behind her are these rows and rows of cold medicine. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'll have another chocolate over there. <laughs> So he was, he was very forgiving. Good role model for me. And when the, when the thoughts of the critic come up, when the thoughts of self-doubt come up about the validity of yourself or your practice, just doubt the doubts. It's a good way to relate to doubts, just doubt them. As one yogi on the last retreat said, my, my inner critic has become my inner cheerleader. She was this young 22-year-old yogi. So other places that we can extend love to ourselves in our lives. One place very obvious is our bodies, our health, our physical health, what we take into our bodies in the form of food, or in the the culture that we live in, the the media that we allow into our in, in, into our sphere, um, just paying attention with some care, what's healthy to take into my body, or the way I treat my body. How do we treat our bodies? Do we treat them with care and respect? Do we push? Do we expect our body to just be there for us no matter what we want to do? So do we treat it harshly? Do we get frustrated when it doesn't perform and it gets sick? So what would it be to extend loving kindness to your body so you lived in a way that respected your body's capacity, respected your body's limits, respected your body's energy capacity or your brain's capacity? Sometimes we just cram our lives with so much busyness and work and overcommitment. And what suffers? We suffer. And then, of course, everybody else around us suffers. I don't know if I read this quote earlier, but I love this quote. It's a Spanish proverb. It says, it is beautiful to do nothing and rest afterwards. <laughs> so may you do this at least once a day. 
remember that and to somehow in, in, embody that. It's beautiful to do nothing and rest afterwards. Only from the country that invented the siesta. And then listening to our hearts about what it is. Are we living in attunement with our hearts, with ourselves, with our deeper aspiration for ourselves? There's the place of um, paying attention to the company that we keep. And the Buddha talked about it being very important, uh, the quality of spiritual friendship, about the people that we're associating with, because people who we associate with have such a powerful influence. So making wise choices about the company that we keep. This is a part of a poem from David White. He says, Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn that anything or anyone that doesn't bring you alive is too small for you. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn that anything or anyone that doesn't bring you alive is too small for you. Something else that we can do that we often don't give ourselves, which is often odd since we we are creatures of um, wanting pleasure and happiness, is sometimes we neglect joy in our lives. I often work with people privately or on a retreat and they report feeling very grim and dour and sad or depressed or just working too hard. And I say, what are you doing for joy? And they look at me like, huh? What do you mean what am I doing for joy? I say, well, you know, what, what brings you joy in your life? And they go, well, God, I don't know. It's been a while. I don't know, maybe movies? I don't know. And I come across this a lot. And so I, I encourage people to, you know, so much of practice is about balance. And we can so easily, uh, our, our balance can be imbalanced and we move towards either working hard or seeing what's wrong in the world or wrong in ourselves or wrong politically. And we forget to see the joy, the beauty, the love. So I often ask people to do uh, a joy practice Partly, as I talked about last night and uh, the other night uh, with uh, appreciative joy, turning the heart to that which brings gladness. So, so reflecting for yourself, what is it that brings gladness to your heart? I sometimes ask people to write a list, all the things that bring you joy, and do one of them one a day. Do, do something once a day. Just as simple as feeding the birds, looking outside for five minutes, taking a nap, drinking tea quietly, just very simple things. You know, looking at an art book, taking a walk around the block. Just very, just doesn't take much to bring some, some balance. And for me, it's being out in nature, spending time. Just the smallest um, contact with nature is very uplifting for me. And that's my joy practice. And then there's, um, so there's meta towards ourselves. There's, uh, Matter in our relationships. It's really the, the greater field of where we practice metta. This is a poem from Hafiz, Sufi poet. If God invited you to a party and said, everyone in the ballroom tonight will be my special guest, how would you then treat them when you arrived? Indeed, indeed, and Hafiz knows that there is no one in this world who is not upon his jewel dance floor.
This is from Albert Schweitzer. The deeper we look into nature, the more we recognize it is full of life, and the more profoundly we know that all life is a secret and that we are united with all life that is in nature, the man can no longer live his life for himself alone. We realize that all life is valuable and that we are united to all this life. From this knowledge comes our spiritual relationship with the universe. So as we've talked about, matter is this generosity of heart. It has a quality of movement in it that appreciates our common humanity, our, our common fragility and vulnerability to suffering and pain. And it's the, it's the aspect of the heart that naturally wants to reach out, naturally wants to move, to connect. It's the, it's the in, innate response to reach out to somebody who's suffering, to take care of somebody who's in distress. So, and there's many, many different ways that we can reach out, that we can take time. And often it's just a question of taking a little more time to appreciate or take in the situation of somebody else. You know, sometimes, we, often we're so wrapped up in ourselves, in our world, in our thoughts, in our worries, <coughs> and we just takes a little time to sort of get out of ourselves and to see, oh, there's another person in front of me. What might they need? Something simple. There's a hello. How are you doing? Giving them a gift of our time or our presence. And I think the retreat, I heard many stories of people feeling touched by, you know, somebody wouldn't show up for a yogi job and they'd get, and then um, I'd hear that somebody left some chocolates out their door, outside their door, or a little note, or all these different ways that we can um, express love or kindness. I was on a retreat, as I said, this retreat a couple of weeks ago at Spirit Rock, and there was a mother and daughter who were sitting in the retreat, and the mother was, it was her first retreat. And she looked really distressed one day. And so um, contrary to, the, to the, 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 the ban about writing notes to each other, she slipped a little note in her mother's pocket, just said, I love you. And it doesn't take much to connect and reach out like that. And it can really transform somebody's, somebody's day, someone's moment. And it's often just about being considerate, being thinking outside of ourselves what someone else might need. Trangyu Rinpoche wrote, if you want to be happy, serve others. So it's another way that we can express this heart of kindness is by more engaged service, more engaged action, (laughs) different ways that we can help, we can volunteer. I always take great heart when I read about, uh, I read one article in the Times that there's billions and billions of hours um, that, that, that get accrued each year with people volunteering in this country. And then I also read the study that um, there's more uh, tr- uh, um, teenagers and young adults uh, volunteering uh, for time abroad than, than any time since the beginning of the Peace Corps. That, there's a, that there is a, a movement to engage more and to, to, to see the suffering in the world, and to see uh, that we can do something about it. So another place that um, love and kindness is very much needed is in, our, is in our more intimate relationships, in our families, 
you know, loved ones, parents, children, often you know, the, the closer contact we have with people, the more challenging it is to stay open-hearted and to also love without conditions. So that to love without saying, you know, I love you, but, you know, you're really messy around the house. It's really getting on my nerves. Not that, you, not that it's not unwise to say that, if that's true. But to, you know, we, we so quickly place limitations or conditions on our kindness and our love. Yogi once talked about how her family loves, loves her when she's a Buddha, but hates her when she's a Buddhist. He loves her when she embodies the qualities of, of practice, of matter, of mindfulness. Not so crazy about when she preaches to them. So one thing that's important to remember when we leave retreat is, you know, we often have a lot of, th- you know, especially as you're sending matter to people, you've often had a lot of thoughts about them about their lives and what they need to do to make themselves better and improve themselves and you know, some of those, all kinds of interesting, wonderful insights that you are probably can't wait to get home and share with them. Some things is good to keep to ourselves. <laughs> and that's one of them. You know, I just know the best thing for you. If you just did meta practice every day and some mindfulness practice, <laughs> you'd be really a nice person. You know all that negativity you have, all that stuff. You know that would. You know the best the way that we can teach people about our practice is to embody it. People learn most from what we do, not what we say, especially children. There's a cartoon from, it's called Bizarro. There's a picture of a man who's just come home from work uh, at the end of the day, and uh, it looks like his uh, spouse has pinned a note to the door, and he's reading it with some consternation. It says, Dear Kirby, after all these years of meditation, and in spite of your years of endless ridicule, I have finally reached universal consciousness. I have transcended to a higher plane. I am everywhere and nowhere non-existent and eternal, all-seeing and all-knowing. You, on the other hand, can go suck an egg. (laughs) So there's a place for wise speech as we leave retreat. I think this is where the precepts come in, in handy a lot um, you know, in terms of protections for our practice, protections for matter. One, one of the protections is the practice of the precepts. Wise speech, kind speech. The Buddha talked about refraining from harsh speech, cultivating wise speech, honest speech, but also kind speech. Speaking what's truthful, but also what's useful. Finding the right time, the right place before we say what we're going to say. The practice of non-harming, you know, the essence of the precepts, non-harming any other life form, not killing any other life form. It's the essence of our meta practice, the essence of the precepts. Respecting each other, not taking what hasn't been given. Respecting each other's sexuality, not acting out that causes harm. 
refraining from intoxicants that cloud our mindfulness in a way that may make us more inclined to harm through our words and actions. So to practice in our relationships loving people as they are, with all their faults and limitations, just like we have our faults and limitations, it's a very radical practice. How would our relationships look? How would our movement in the world look if we moved uh, accepting people as they were, as they are? There's a story from last year from a woman who was uh, in a lot of pain about feeling very angry, about being very, about feeling very rejected and criticized by her family. And a long history of um, estrangement and alienation and uh, lack of contact um, and pain about being unaccepted by them. And as she really felt into that experience, um, what she actually realized was that she was the one who'd rejected them. She was the one who wasn't accepting them. She was the one who'd alienated herself. So sometimes the meta invites us to look a little more deeply into what's at the cause of uh, the pain in our relationships. So some, some supports for our meta practice, you know, this quality that we talked about earlier about the, one of the proximate causes for meta, reflecting on the goodness of people, reflecting on people's uh, good qualities, really invaluable as we move through the world, you know, as to, we, to retrain our, our minds from the habit of always seeing what's wrong, what's at fault, what's not good enough, what's lacking, to, oh, what's beautiful here, what's, what's whole. The practice of forgiveness is a wonderful support for metta, as I mentioned earlier. The practice of uh, appreciative joy and mudita the practice of compassion, turning our attention towards suffering versus running away from it, standing steady. Did I read a quote from Trungpa Rinpoche about compassion the other day? I did? Okay, I won't read it then. Or maybe I will, because it's a great quote. Here it is. <laughs> Never does any harm to read some of these wisdom quotes. When you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. And if you search for the awakened heart, there is nothing but tenderness. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has a power to heal the world. So we take this courageous heart into our lives. And one of the things that allows us to do is to stand a little more steady in the face of pain. Our own pain, people we love, their pain, the pain of the world. I remember I've spent many years working at Vallecitos Mountain Refuge. It's a, re- it's a retreat center in New Mexico uh, that's primarily for social environmental activists who generally come after long, many years of um, pretty frontline activist work, and they often come pretty burnt out. And they 
do some meditation practice, mindfulness practice, and work on and be in, in the beautiful, pristine wilderness there. And one of the questions is, how do, how do we take care of ourselves in the middle of doing very challenging work? And, you know, and so they get some time to develop practices that support that. Meditation, silence, stillness, being in nature. And that often what a lot of them notice is they're just living very imbalanced lives. And many of them end up returning and doing uh, many, many retreats at this retreat center and elsewhere because they've seen how imbalanced their lives have become and how important it is to practice. So as you leave this retreat, to remember the things that supported you here and to bring those elements into your life. What is it that supported you here? Was it the silence? Was it the meditation? Was it the metapractice itself? Was it the support of the community? It's a big piece that I think we often underestimate in our lives. We may be drawn to the Buddha or his teaching and the practices, but we forget it's very hard to do this alone. You know, I mean, I'm sure you've felt how supportive and nurturing it is to be in community doing this practice. It allows the heart to open so much more than if we just sat alone in the forest, probably. So uh, I encourage you to make use of the support that may be available to you in your community, in your town, your city, um, to seek out places where people meet and meditate together, listen to Dharma teachings, do day-long retreats, do weekend retreats, do and do more retreats if, that's, if you find that that's what supports you. The Buddha talked about this practice as going against the stream. It's very hard to stay steady when you're going against the stream. We need the support of allies, friends, peers, mentors, teachers to, um, to help us along in this path. So I think I'll leave you with a story um, of the heart in action. It's a story of a woman who uh, lost her um, teenage son uh, in a gang shooting drive-by. And uh, the story picks up from when the woman is at the trial of her son's killer. And as the trial went uh, through the verdict, um, as just before the, the, um, the man was led off uh, to incarceration, she uh, stood up and said, I'm going to kill you. And some months went by, and after a certain, um, I think it was six months, the the mother went to visit the um, went to vi- visit the killer of her son, and he'd been living on the streets before this killing and was uh, didn't have much family contact. And she was the only person who would visit him in the prison. And the first time she went, she gave him some money, and then began to visit him regularly. And um, after several years, when his sentence was coming coming up 
for termination. It's about six months before she asked him what he was going to do. Um, when he got out, and he said, well, I have no idea. I've got no money, got no education. And she said, well, I have a friend who has a job. Maybe I can, maybe I, uh, this, this company, maybe I can find you a job. So she ended up finding him a job. And then she asked him where he was going to live. And he said, well, I have no idea. I don't have any, any friends or family outside anymore. And she says, well, maybe you can come live with me. So she took him into her house and gave him work. And that went on for some months. And then one evening, she sat him down. And she said, I want to talk to you. So he sat down rather sheepishly. And she said, do you remember in the courtroom when I said I was going to kill you? And he said, yeah, I sure do. And she said, well, I I did. I didn't want that boy who could kill my son for no reason to remain alive on the earth. I wanted him to die. That's why I started to visit you and bring you things. That's why I got you into this job and let you live here in my house. That's how I set about changing you. And that old boy, he's gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone and that killer is gone, if you'll stay here and I've got room, I'd like to adopt you if you'll let me. And she became the mother of a son's killer, the mother he never had. So I love that story. And it's a very dramatic story, but it's just an indication of the power of the loving heart, the power of what we can do when we bring this heart of kindness and compassion and forgiveness into the world. So let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.